So anyway, good to be back in Ohio. Good to see some folks I haven't seen in a while. And uh, good to see everybody else that I normally see when I'm here too. So uh, what we're going to do today is I'm going to talk about a subject that probably we've heard before. How about that? My phone started ringing. I thought I'd shut that off. So I still need to do some work on that, gang. But uh, I'll get it down eventually. So I'm going to be talking about a subject that we're probably all familiar with. But we need to return to these familiar subjects from time to time to make sure that we understand them and we can explain them to other people. And I'm especially speaking to our young people within the audience today, those of you who haven't made a decision uh, about baptism yet, uh, those of you that aren't completely, fully committed to the Bible yet, uh, this is a good sermon, especially for you folks, because it is a bedrock belief that we have in the Church of God International as to what happens when you die. And what we believe is very different from most of Christianity on what occurs at death. It's not only different from most of Christianity, it's different from other religions also as to what we believe occurs at death. And uh, I've titled this sermon, Resurrection from What? Resurrection from What? Because most of Christianity believes that if they were to die right now, and they believe completely in Jesus Christ, that they would immediately awaken from death into some conscious state. And we don't believe that. The Bible doesn't teach that, and we want to look at that subject today. Now, the best place to go to start talking about this subject, I feel, would be 1 Corinthians chapter 15. They call this the resurrection chapter, and it's probably the best place to go if you're going to have a discussion with somebody about what happens when you die, what is the resurrection for, and all those types of things. And remember what my title was. My title was, Resurrection from What? And what it's from is, of course, death. We are being resurrected from death. Now think about what your idea of death is, all right? For me, you can look it up in a dictionary. Death means that you're not alive. Now, I know that's pretty elementary, but we need to say that again and again. Death means you're not conscious. You don't know what is going on. That's what death is about. It is like sleep. Now, some are going to argue, well, when I sleep, sometimes I dream. I get that argument, But there are many times when I'm sleeping and I'm totally oblivious until I wake in the morning and I'm not sure, is it time to get up today or am I still sleeping? You know, you get what I'm saying. We've all experienced those different things when it comes to sleep. The Bible likens death to sleep more so than being aware, awake, and conscious of anything. And it does that for the reason that you are out of it when you are dead. Dead is dead. It is what you think it is. Now, let's go to 1 Corinthians 15, and let's see what Paul has to say here about the resurrection of the dead. And I'll make some comments as we move through this. Then we'll move into some areas where the scholars of the world today are in unison on this idea that the idea of an immortal soul comes from pagan religion. It doesn't come from the Old Testament. It doesn't come from the New Testament. And you can do the research. Okay, I've done the research myself. You young folks, you need to do the research yourself and determine where did this concept of living forever come from. It doesn't come from the Bible. It comes from sources outside the Bible. And then a big question has to arise in your mind. Well, why do most churches teach that then? And we'll get to that question as we get into this and move forward. But 1 Corinthians 15, I'd like you to read the whole chapter when you have a chance, but I'm going to pull out some pieces as I go through this sermon. I'm going to pick it up in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15. 
For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. Now the reason I focus on that is some Christian churches teach when Christ was in the grave before He rose from the dead, He went and preached to spirits in prison. And amongst these churches, they say those spirits were dead people who had lived on the earth before. Now that is not true, that is a fallacy, but I want you to see what it says in 1 Corinthians 15 about Christ's death. Does it say anything about Him preaching to spirits in prison after He died? No, it says He was buried and He rose on the third day and then his res- after His resurrection. There's nothing here about a momentous occasion like going to preach to spirits who are in some type of intermediate state of death. That is not in your Bible. If it did happen, why would he not write about it right here? This is the perfect place to make that known to us that Christ did something like that. But he did not. He was dead and buried for three days and three nights before he arose from the dead. Moving on into verse 6 of this same chapter. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Now again, I'm emphasizing that language here for a purpose. These brothers who saw Jesus after He was risen from the dead, they were probably Christians. They were probably believers in Jesus Christ. That's why it calls them brethren or brothers there. And it says what about them? That most of them are still alive when He was writing this book, but some of them have what? Fallen asleep. And what is sleep? It's death. It's out of it. It's unconsciousness. It's unaware of what's going on around you. Now, why do I emphasize it here? Because here's what some Christian churches say. They say after Christ rose from the dead, that's when He opened up the gates to heaven. So now the dead have the opportunity to go to heaven. Those who believed in Christ, they now have the opportunity to go to heaven. But what does this scripture say? After Christ's resurrection, people who had seen Him in His resurrected state Some of them have died, and what happened to them? They fell asleep. They fell asleep. It doesn't say, and they went to heaven and are having a great time with Jesus in heaven. That's not there in your Bible, is it? It's not there because it's not happening, folks. They haven't been resurrected yet. They aren't aware. They're sleeping. Read what the Bible says. Get the simplicity of this. They are asleep. They will rise someday but at Christ's second coming. And we're going to see that in a moment. So let's continue through this chapter. Again, please read all of it, but I'm going to pull out some pieces because I only have 50 to 60 minutes here. So verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So just like today... People back 2,000 years ago had different ideas on what happens when you die. Some people thought, you're over when you die, nothing happens. Some people thought, oh, there is a resurrection of the dead. Some people thought various things about death and when you rose, etc., etc., just like today. There were all kinds of ideas, and that is what they're talking about here in verse 12. But notice what he says, verse 13. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead. But He did not raise Him, in fact, if the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised... Christ has not been raised either, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins, 
then those also who have fallen asleep, there's that language again, what the state of the dead is, it's sleep, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Some translations say they are perished. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. What's he saying here? If Christ didn't rise from the dead, then there's no point in us coming to church. There's no point in our preaching. There's no point in the Church of God International. And if there's no point in that, then you guys are all dead, dead men and women walking. You're dead men and women walking because once you die, that's the end of you. You will perish. You are lost. It is completely over. There's nothing else. And that's what some religions teach, that there is nothing else. But this religion is different. It preaches a resurrection from the dead, from a sleep, from unconsciousness, from unawareness. That's what the Bible preaches and teaches. But when does that happen? When does that happen? We're going to get to that. Because it hasn't addressed when that happens yet, but it will. And it will make it very plain and simple. Let's move on to verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Get this. The first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. Now get this, gang. Even you young kids. If you got something first, okay, does that imply that something else is going to come? So these are your first fruits. That implies there could be second fruits and third fruits, right? That's pretty basic. I think elementary school children would understand that. So Christ is the first fruits from the dead. Now get it. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. So he died, he fell asleep, he rose after three days, he's the first fruits. Implication is more are to come, but when? When do they rise from the dead? It hasn't said that yet. Verse 21. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Now get this, here's the important part. But each in his own turn or order. Christ the first fruits, get this folks, listen carefully. Then when he comes, let me repeat it. Then when he comes... Those who belong to Him. So when are these people going to be raised from the dead? When He comes the second time, obviously, because at this point He had already come. So when He comes again, His second coming, that's when the dead will be raised. Other scriptures in your Bible make that clear, that when He comes again, the dead will be raised and meet Him in the air. That is when the resurrection occurs. That is when these other fruits will manifest themselves and meet Jesus Christ in the air to come down to His kingdom on this earth. Verse 23, But each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits, then when He comes, those who belong to Him. Now again, this is specifically about the resurrection, there is a second resurrection. You can read about that in Revelation 20, verse 5. I'm not going to get into a discussion about that second resurrection today. I'm dealing primarily with the second, the second coming of Jesus and the resurrection that occurs at that particular point. Now, let's go further. Verse 26. Get this, get this point. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now let me ask you a question. Death is still an enemy when Paul was writing this book, or whoever wrote it down for Paul. Death was still an enemy at this time. If you go to heaven when you die, folks, why would death be an enemy? Because death would lead you to heaven, right? You get what I'm saying here. So why is death an enemy? Death is an enemy because you're not aware, you're not awake, you're not alive when you're dead. You're dead when you're dead. I can't say it any simpler than that. You're not conscious, you're not aware. Why is death an enemy? If death takes you to Christ as people preach today, how is death an enemy? 
Yet your Bible says a number of times, death is the last enemy to be overcome. And that doesn't happen until later, folks, when that is finally overcome. Not only through the second coming of Christ, but after the thousand-year kingdom of God, the rest of the dead come to life and are resurrected to have their opportunity to understand the truth of God. And then finally, death will be eradicated. But until that time, people can suffer the second death. And you'll read about that again in Revelation chapter 20. There can be a second death for you. You definitely don't want to be in that death, folks, because there's no waking up from that one. There's no waking up from that one. Now, let's go to the end of this chapter. Again, please read the whole chapter in context. But towards the end of 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 50, for our young folks, listen to the wording here. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50, I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. Now, why does it say we will not all sleep? I'm telling you, when you die, you go to sleep. Because when Christ comes the second time, some people who believe in Him will still be alive, so they will never die. They will change dramatically and instantaneously into a spiritual being at Christ's second coming. That's why it says some don't fall asleep, because they'll be alive when Christ returns and then change in a twinkling of an eye. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye. And here it reiterates the time frame. At the last trumpet. And we know the last trumpet in Revelation 20 is when Christ comes the second time. That's when the resurrection occurs. The Bible is simple. It's plain. It's clear on this foundational doctrine. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal, who's mortal? You and me are mortal, folks. But what does Christianity, most of Christianity today tell you? you got an immortal soul or spirit inside of you that lives on after your death. But what does the Bible say? It says it right here. You're mortal, man. So let, let's, let's think about this a minute. Let's think about this a minute. If you've got an immortal soul in you, okay, if you've got an immortal soul in you, why would the Bible say you are mortal? Think about that for a minute. Because you're not mortal. I mean, you're not immortal. You're, see, you got getting me confused here. Because you're not immortal... You are mortal. And the word mortal is used for man in other places in the Bible. The word immortal to describe man is never used in the Bible except after you're resurrected, it says you become like him. So you get everlasting life. You get that, but it's a gift from God. You don't have it inherently as part of you right now. It has to come from God. Romans 6, 23. The gift of God is eternal life, but the wages of sin is death. It's not death in fire. It's not death in an indeterminate state. It's not death away from God. It is death. It is death is what you get. Now, you're going to get it through a fire, but then you'll be done. Okay? You don't have to burn forever. All right? But the Bible is very clear. Now, if you have doubts about whether or not you're immortal because you've listened to somebody who talked about being reincarnated or you met somebody who said they've felt previous lives before. Folks, all kinds of stuff goes on in our brain. A lot of stuff is going on in our brain that can make us think a lot of different things. And that's going to get me to a, a point here in a moment. But notice 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 15. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 15. If you're still thinking you might be immortal... 1 Timothy 6, even though the Bible says you're mortal in a couple different places, notice 1 Timothy 6, verse 15. It's speaking of God here, and notice what it says. Which God will bring about in His own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal. Who alone is immortal? Who's, who's immortal? God. God's immortal. He alone is immortal. That's what your Bible says. 
I don't know what other people are saying. I'm just telling you what the Bible says, okay? People can believe whatever they want to believe. I'm not here to change people's mind, convince people. I can't do that. People got to make up their own minds. But your Bible says God alone is immortal and you are mortal. I know it's hard to take that on, that, you know, you're not a big deal, okay? I like to use the word worm. I've heard that used before to, to describe us. We're like a worm, gang, okay? But we can become a mighty worm <laughs> only through God's Holy Spirit, a mighty worm. Maybe that'll be a new superhero for kids someday. I don't know. But uh, that, that could work, okay? Another scripture, I'm not going to turn there, is 1 Timothy 1 and verse 17, where again it mentions the fact that God is immortal, we are not. Now, I don't want you to believe me. I could just be blabbering up here, okay? Why do you believe Mike James? What's, who's Mike James, okay? I'm telling you, people with bigger and mightier degrees who know Hebrew and Greek, they would tell you exactly what I told you just now about what your Bible is saying. They would tell you exactly what I just told you. And let me just quote a few of these individuals who are smarter than me. I want you to, to get some uh, credibility from some other sources here because it's important when you're speaking about things that you want to give some credibility to what you're saying. So some people might just think I'm a crazy emotional guy up here. I've heard that before when I've done some sermons. So let me get some other people to quote from here and see what they have to say. Listen to this. The problem thus highlighted stems from the fact that traditional orthodoxy, while it claims to find its origins in Scripture or the Bible, in fact contains elements drawn from a synthesis of Scripture and Neoplatonism. The mingling of Hebrew and Greek thinking was set in motion first in the second century by an influx of Hellenism through the church fathers whose theology was colored by the Platonists, Plotinus, and Porphyry. The effects of the Greek influence are widely recognized by theologians, though they go largely unnoticed by many believers. That's from the book, The Doctrine of the Trinity, Christianity, Self-Inflicted Wound, page 114. Did you hear what he was saying there? That this idea of an immortal soul is coming from Greek philosophical ideas that got into the early New Testament church. Because Hellenism, which was, Hellenism, which was a, wow, Hellenism, which was a, Sorry about that, okay? It's my wife calling, so I'm in trouble. But anyway, uh, just a little, little laugh there since I messed up. i got to do something with that, okay? So um, Hellenism went from about 300 B.C. to 300 A.D. Before the Roman Empire took over, the Greeks were in charge. And the Greeks had these philosophical ideas about a lot of things. And one of them was Plato who thought that when you die, your spirit lives on in some way. It could either go to a bad place and you're punished or a good place and you're, you're loving life. That's what Plato's concept was. But even before Plato, there were ideas from the Babylonians and the Egyptians that came down to the different peoples. And Plato may have been influenced by some of those philosophies. But the point I'm trying to make is the guy who wrote this book has a Ph.D., okay? I don't. I don't have a Ph.D. And he's telling you the same thing I'm telling you. Now, let me read another one. The notion of resurrection in which the deceased person remains in the ground until Judgment Day was popular in Jesus' lifetime. And this is the notion of the afterlife that the founder of Christianity taught. However... The Christian tradition very early adopted the Greek idea of an eternal soul that went to a realm of punishment or a realm of reward after the body died. That comes from the Death and Afterlife book, page 181. 
Here's a theologian, a Canadian theologian named Clark Pinnock. Listen to what he says. Pinnock contends the Bible, when read properly in context, because there are some scriptures that can get you going down the wrong road if you just read them by themselves. When the Bible's read properly in context, it does not teach the traditional view of an immortal soul. He also contends that the predominant images of hell in the Bible are about death, perishing, destruction, and corruption, but not conscious, everlasting torment. One of his major beefs is that the traditional view assumes the immortality of the soul, which is a Greek idea and not a biblical one, and that the traditional view, therefore, requires that God grant immortality to the wicked in order to punish them eternally. That's Clark Pinnock, Canadian theologian who thinks differently from most of the Christian churches out there. He thinks like us on this. Did you hear what he said at the end, though? That if you believe in an immortality of the soul, what it has you believing is that God's going to give immortality to wicked people also. Do you get that? Because if He's going to punish them forever, and they're wicked, they have to have immortality too. Why would God give immortality to the wicked? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that He would burn people forever either. And that causes a lot of people to not believe in Christianity. But again, that's a fallacy. That's not true. Now, one more quote. Well, maybe two more quotes. The Christian hope was not the hope of going to heaven with Jesus, but the hope of Christ coming from heaven to earth to establish the kingdom of God on earth and restore all things and redeem the world and raise everyone from the dead. The hope was resurrection of the dead. Philip Carey, Ph.D., professor at Eastern University. One more quote. The doctrine, speaking of the immortal soul, is increasingly regarded as a post-apostolic innovation. That means after the apostles. Not only unnecessary, but positively harmful to proper biblical interpretation and understanding. That's from Edward Fudge, The Fire That Consumes, page 24. So we see all this information about the fact that we don't have an immortal soul. It comes from Greek philosophy. It got into the Christian church. But how did this happen? You might wonder, like, how how could this happen? How could the Christian churches lose sight of what the Bible was teaching them? Well, one thing you got to remember is when Christianity began, they didn't really have a Bible altogether like we have today. Many people didn't even read back then or have the capacity to understand what you have the capacity to understand today. There wasn't even a New Testament when Jesus was preaching. There was only the Old Testament. And not many people had a handle on that or could get it. Okay? So keep that in mind. But another thing to keep in mind, young people, believe it or not, there is an evil force in the world. There is Satan the devil, the adversary, who's working against us. And he does what? Revelation 12, 9 says he deceives the whole world. Now you've got to believe that to help you understand how most of Christianity can have a false concept of what happens after you die. If you don't believe there's a spiritual force in the world working against God and His way, you're going to have trouble dealing with the Bible and what it has to say. There is really an evil spiritual force in the world that is leading people astray. And when you realize most of Christianity believes something that is not biblical, it can help you understand that, yeah, there probably is something going on like that for why that this particular thing happened and people don't see what the truth of the Bible really says. Now, I dealt with 1 Corinthians 15 for the most part. What I want to do is just 
give you a couple definitions of resurrection and dead before I move into some scriptures that bring home the point of what I've been saying thus far in the sermon. Resurrection, the rising again to life of all the human dead before the final judgment. Resurrection, the state of one risen from the dead. And you can look it up in your own dictionaries. You're going to find essentially similar definitions for resurrection. Again, resurrection from what? From the dead. Now, what is dead? People will argue about what is dead, right? Well, here's what the the dictionary says about dead. A person who is no longer alive. If you're awake, folks, you're alive. If you're conscious, you're alive in some way, okay? Another definition. A permanent cessation of all vital functions. That's what dictionaries say about dead. That's why they put the word dead in your Bible, because they understand what the dictionary definition of dead is, and they try to relate it to that original Hebrew word, that original Greek word, and the best word they come up with is dead. And dead means a cessation of the vital forces that make life. So when you're dead, you're, you're out of it. You're unconscious. You're not aware of what is happening. And does the Bible address that over and over in various places? Yes, it does. Let's just look at a couple places where the Bible makes this point outside of 1 Corinthians 15. And here's an important point to understand. Those of you that are young, you haven't studied the Bible for years and years, you're just starting to study it. When you read Scripture, you've got to understand what the context of Scripture is in which you're reading that Scripture. So you may see something that talks about the Lazarus and the rich man. And it talks about that Lazarus and the rich man died, and after they had died, they had this conversation. But what you need to understand is Lazarus and the rich man is a parable. A parable is not reality. A parable is a story that is bringing you a larger spiritual point. And if you study the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, you understand that the larger spiritual point it was making there was about following Moses and the law. It wasn't written to explain what happens when somebody dies. It was a popular conception at this time among some people that there may be an awareness in death. And they were using that story to make a greater spiritual point of the importance of following God's law and Moses rather than what other people were telling you or what the Pharisees were telling you. That is an important point. You need to understand the context in which something is being brought about. That's an important reason why when you read Revelation, you need to understand most of Revelation, a lot of Revelation, is symbolic language. John was having a vision of what he sees in Revelation. So we can't take Revelation and believe it literally point by point for what we read in Revelation. Can you believe the Bible literally and point by point in various parts of it? Yes, because a lot of it is history. A lot of it is a retelling of what happened at this point or that point. But you have to be conscious and aware of the context in which Scripture is written before you come down and make a judgment about what this Scripture means or what that Scripture means. Now, having said that, turn with me to Ecclesiastes 9, verse 5 for a moment, and I want to show you a scripture there. Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 5. And you tell me what the context is here. Ecclesiastes 9, 5 says this, For the living know they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even the memory of them is forgotten. Now, I believe that's talking about the state of the dead, okay? You can believe whatever you want about it, but if you read the beginning of the chapter through the entirety of the chapter, you get that Solomon is writing about death in relation to life. And he's saying, hey, the dead is bad. You know, you don't want to be dead, okay? Because life is not there. You don't have an awareness in death. That was he, what he was inspired to write here in Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 5. 
Now notice this in Psalm 6 and 5. Psalm 6 and verse 5. Again, this is Scripture. No one knows you when he is dead. Who praises you from the dead? Question mark. It's a rhetorical question. David knew that no one praises God from the dead because he was aware of Scripture. And he knew what Scripture said about the dead. When you read through First and Second Kings, when you read through First and Second Chronicles, when a king died, what Scripture said is, he went to sleep with his fathers. He went to sleep with his fathers. It says that again and again and again in Scripture. If the writer wanted to get across a different concept of death, why does it say he went to sleep with his fathers? Because that's what happened, folks. He's out of it. He's asleep with his fathers waiting for a resurrection. Psalm 146 and verse 4. Psalm 146 and verse 4. Let's see what that has to say. Psalm 146 and verse 4. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. Okay, and again, your King James may say it a little differently. Same idea. Your thoughts perish. You don't think anymore. Now, here's what some people will say about this. When their spirit departs. Oh, that's my immortal spirit that's going somewhere. But then again, you'd be wrong because you're thinking of the Christmas carol and Charles Dickens and him seeing the three spirits at night. That's in your head because that used to be in my head because I had issues with this when I started understanding the Bible. I said, well, wait a minute, my spirit's departing, so I've got this ethereal thing inside of me that goes away. No, that's not what spirit means here. It basically means your life force your essence that gives you vitality. I've got some vitality here. You see what I'm saying? Okay? So that sense that gives you life, that's what departs you. It's gone. You're done. It's over. You get what I'm saying? Now, you'll read other scriptures where it says, the Spirit returns to God who gave it. And people will say, oh, there you go. The Spirit goes to God. Who's the source of life? Who's the source of life? It's God. So the Spirit goes to God. Why? Because God gave you life. He animated you. He animated Adam. And He's in control of life or death for you. It goes back to God in the sense that He now has control whether He's ever going to give it back to you, whether He's going to resurrect you from the dead. When Stephen says, I give my spirit to God in Acts 7.59, it then says about him that then Stephen went to sleep. So if, spirit, if, if Stephen's spirit went to God when he's being stoned to death, as some people will tell you, why does it say in the very next line, and Stephen went to sleep? Why would it not say, and when his spirit got to heaven, they had a great party up there because Stephen was now in heaven with God and everybody was happy because that didn't happen. Stephen was saying, my life is now in God's hands. It's going to end right now. So my spirit's going to God. I know I'm going to be resurrected whenever God allows me to be resurrected. It's all in His hands now. Jesus made a similar statement where He gave up His spirit. Again, He's giving up His life because without the Father and the Holy Spirit, He would not have His life renewed three days and three nights later. That's why it's using that type of language. But if you don't study the Hebrew and Greek word, you're going to be thinking about everything that's already infested your mind from your whole life. For me, it was A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, okay? And that story of the three spirits at night. That's what was in my head when I'd read that, that scripture. But you've got to understand what the Hebrew and Greek words really meant thousands of years ago, folks. And it's a totally different concept. Now, again, we could go on and talk about other scriptures that say the same thing about what happens to the dead, that they are out of it, they're not conscious, they're not aware. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to address a couple scriptures that people use to go against what I'm saying. They'll say, well, what about this scripture? And what about that scripture? So let's look at a couple of those scriptures. I've already addressed one of them. It was over in Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 7. It says there, the dust returns to the ground it came from, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Ecclesiastes 12, 7. 
Again, the explanation for that is the word spirit there is ruach from the Hebrew, and it merely means breath of life. It doesn't mean some immortal, ethereal thing that's inside of you that lives on forever. That is what ruach means. And understand this, the same writer who wrote that in Ecclesiastes 12, 7, wrote this in Ecclesiastes 3, 19 through 21. Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animal. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust. And to dust all return. And then he asked rhetorically, Who knows if the spirit of man rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth? He's asking that question rhetorically. He already has answered it in his previous verses. That is a rhetorical question. When you read the commentaries on that, you've all asked rhetorical questions before you know the answer to. You sometimes give the answer before you ask that question. He's giving the answer that animals and men have the same death. It ends, it's over. The difference is God can bring new life to the dead humans. Again, that is the explanation of the Spirit going to God. What about Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 2? Now, I don't have a lot of time to get into all the details here, but you remember Elijah was taken by a whirlwind up into heaven. And people will say, well, that Elijah went to heaven. There's, there's evidence of that, that Elijah went to heaven. But if you read through the rest of that chapter, what you will find is once they saw Elijah being taken by that whirlwind into heaven, the people around, around Elisha said, hey, we'll go find Elijah over those hills over there. Why did they say that? They had no conception of going to heaven. They believed Elisha was in the hills yonder when he was taken up by that chariot into heaven. They didn't think he went to heaven where God is. They believed he was taken over somewhere else on planet earth. And that's why they said what they said. And if you read further, if you read further in Kings and Chronicles, you will find that a letter written by Elijah was sent to the king. And what you will find, if you read it carefully, that this letter was written years after Elijah had been taken by that whirlwind into heaven. You can do the, the, the study on that, the research on that, and prove that Elijah's letter was written about after the occurrence of Elijah being taken by a whirlwind into heaven. So that is easily uh, explained in that manner. Some say Enoch went to heaven because he was translated and didn't see death. Now, now, when you see that scripture, it doesn't say that he went to heaven. That's not in the Bible. But when you go into Hebrews chapter 11, and you read all of Hebrews chapter 11, it's talking about the patriarchs of the Old Testament. And it mentions all the patriarchs, and it tells you a little information about them. Within that list, Enoch is mentioned. And at the end of that list, when he's done talking about all those patriarchs, he said, all these died. All these died which includes Enoch. And again, Enoch is not in heaven. He, he did die. He's like a human being. He had a special relationship with God. But once again, you can explain that one. We talked about the parable of uh, Lazarus and the rich man. Again, we have a CD on that topic. We have a booklet on that topic. And there's a lot of research you can do on that topic. The point being, a parable is a story that tells you a bigger spiritual point. It's just a story. It's like if I told you a joke about St. Peter at the pearly gates, not that I've told that joke to anybody recently, uh, but it's possible I might tell you a joke about St. Peter at the pearly gates. That doesn't mean I believe that we're going to heaven when we die. Does everybody get what I'm saying here? Okay? Sometimes you use a story to bring home a bigger point about something, and you use a story that people can relate to because you're trying to connect with people where they are. And some of these people are in different places. We all know that, don't we? So that's why that parable is said the way it is said. Now, how about the witch of Endor? 
So you have this witch of Endor who supposedly sees the prophet come up out of the grave and she tells the king that this is what the prophet is saying or there's an audible voice about what this person is saying. But you've got to remember this about the witch of Endor and you can find the story in 1 Samuel 28. What does God's law say about witchcraft? It says stay away from it. it. says don't mess with that stuff. Okay? So obviously, I believe that Satan the devil, his demons, are involved in those types of practices. And what are they about doing? They're about fooling you. They're about making you think what the Bible says isn't real and what other people are telling you is real. Okay? So if that is the case, which it is, then the witch at Endor scenario, I believe, was a manifestation of demonic power being used to go against what God taught about the state of the dead, but also to confound what the king was trying to do in that particular situation. The devil taking over in that particular situation. Uh, Again, the, the Bible says he's a liar, he's a deceiver, and I believe that that would explain the witch of Endor scenario. The last example I will give, because it recently came up when I was visiting a church somewhere, was in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 9, you will read about the souls crying out under the altar, okay? And and it gives you the sense, and let me just go there, Revelation 6 and verse 9, Revelation 6 and verse 9, I've heard this one before. Let me read it to you. Revelation 6 and verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. Some people use this scripture and they say that's the altar under in heaven, okay? And that these people are audibly talking to God. But wait a minute, wait a minute. Think of all the scriptures we've just been over in your Bible that say the dead sleep. Think about all those scriptures, okay? Think about what I read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 about what happens when you die, when the resurrection occurs. Now, understand something about Revelation. I told you it earlier. Revelation, if you read the beginning of Revelation, John says, in vision, I had a vision, and I saw these things happening. And he talks about monsters rising out of the the ocean. Do you believe a giant beast is going to rise out of the ocean? at the end of time, like Godzilla or King Kong. For the young kids, that might, they might relate to that right now, okay? It's not, I'm sorry, it's not going to happen. When it talks about that beast in Revelation, folks, we know that's a symbol of a false religious political organization that is going to take over the world. We know that's a symbol, right? So why don't we know that this is symbolic of those who have died who are sleeping in their graves right now, it's personifying them as to what they would want to say, right? That we want this to be, we be avenged, okay? We want this to happen. It's a vision, it's a dreamlike state that John is in. He's not seeing what is literally going to take place. You need to understand Scripture in context, and you got to be very careful with that. It's easy It's easy to say this and that about Scripture scripture and come up with these all kinds of beliefs, right? We've got hundreds and hundreds of Christian denominations because everybody's doing that. But you've got to take your time. It's not easy to understand the Bible. You've got to study to show yourself approved is what Scripture says. It takes time. It takes effort to understand what the Bible is really saying. And God wants you to put that time and effort in if you've really got that relationship with Him. So we can answer all these questions that those who disagree with us will throw at us. And those are some of the quick ways to answer those questions. If you need more details, talk to me after services and we will discuss. 
Okay, let's start to wind this thing down now. And again, the point I want to make to the young people in the room is when you look at this concept of the immortality of the soul that most of Christianity believes in, you say to yourself, wow, if the Bible isn't teaching that, there's some kind of disconnect here. This doesn't jive. There's a problem here. And that's hopefully going to help you start to see that what we're talking about here at the Church of God International is right with the Bible and what God is saying. The reason it's tough, the reason it's a a difficult road to salvation is because there's so much out there that is pushing us away from salvation, away from what the truth is, and this is just one example of it. It's one example of it. It's a hard road, but you got to get ready for that hard road if you're going to get baptized, if you're going to become a full-time believer in Jesus Christ. You're going to be fighting against these types of things on a daily basis, and I believe you can do it. I believe you can do it. So let's finish with a a positive statement here. Let me uh, take a look at Revelation chapter 20 and just see a little insight into what is going to occur in that future. Revelation chapter 20, and I'm going to pick it up in verse 5. It says, The rest of the dead, speaking after the thousand-year kingdom, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. And again, this is the first resurrection, speaking of the one that occurred before that. Blessed and holy, listen now, verse 6, Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. You want to get into that first resurrection. You want to have life for that extra thousand years. Yes, there is an opportunity for those who come up in that resurrection at the end of the thousand years, but just like you and me, I think we want to get into that first resurrection. And in order to do that, folks, you got to study your Bible. you got to know what it says. you got to understand what it says. And it is not easy.